His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness brotherly uh, kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if anyone does not have them, he is, is nearsighted and blind, and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never fall, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. May God bless his word. I spoke in the introduction before about uh, my last visit here to Port Macquarie. That was some 15 or so years ago. Let me tell you about the first visit. It was 1972, May 1972. My, my wife and I were married on the 13th of May, and on the 14th of May we came to uh, the quiet little town of Port Macquarie for our honeymoon to get to know one another. Now, in 1982, as well as that, uh, there are a number of events that happened that year, of course. Um, for me, marriage was the big one. It was also the year when a movie was released called The Candidate and it starred Robert Redford and there's a link to my marriage because my wife found Robert Redford immensely more handsome and attractive than I was but he was not available so she was stuck with me. I hope she thinks that was the right choice. But there was a movie called The Candidate with Robert Redford. Robert Redford played a character, um, a US social activist. He was the kind of scruffy-haired jeans, a bomb of an old car, a messy life, who had a great passion for social justice and to set the world right. And in his youthful folly, he thought getting into the US Senate could make a useful difference to the world. So he became a, a Democrat candidate for the Senate. And at the start, his candidacy is doing everything wrong because he remains the passionate social activist who doesn't care about appearances and doesn't mind offending people. But then the minders from Democrat head office, the guys in suits, was sent in to straighten him out. And so he's put on message, he's given a haircut, suit, new car, the whole bit goes. Anyway, the minders did it so successfully that Robert, the Robert Redford character is elected to the US Senate. Final scene in the movie. It's the victory party. Everybody's glad. He pulls the chief minder aside into an office while the party goes on. And the minder says to him, why are you looking so glum? We won! And the Robert Redford character says, what's next? All the focus had been on getting to the point of arrival and he'd lost what had counted along the way. What's next? There are some forms of Christian evangelism where in our desire to see people come into the kingdom of God, 
The focus is all on getting people to the point of profession of faith in Christ and to the moment of decision where they commit themselves to Jesus. And uh, we might make the promise very rightfully that the moment you put your faith in Jesus, accompanied by true repentance, your sins are forgiven, you have the hope of eternal life, and you are now a child of God. And that's all true. But the focus is so much on the moment of conversion that there's then nothing left. And so the question, what now, applies to the new convert. Today, I want us to know from the passage in 2 Peter, building on what we've seen from Ephesians, again to reinforce that we need to keep growing as Christians and to be encouraged that God not only wants us to keep growing, but God provides all we need for our growth and for the growth of others. And that encouraged by the knowledge that this is God's purpose and provision, that you and I then make every effort, as the passage says, make every effort in verse 5. Well, our passage is 2 Peter from chapter 1. About all we know about this letter is, externally, is that it's written by Simon Peter and it's the second of his two letters. We know very little about the occasion of it or the people to whom it was written. But as we read the letter, we get the feeling that these words were written to some Christians who've lost the plot. There's some false teachers who've come amongst them and the Christians, as a result, are not doing a very good job of staying focused on the Lord Jesus and in terms of becoming more Christ-like. In particular, they seem to be compromising on some areas of practical godliness, and they are presuming on God's patience. God's patience is meant to lead us to repentance, but they're presuming on God's patience as a matter of indulgence. But they are Christian people. And so in verse 1, Peter addresses his readers as people who, through the righteousness of our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, have received a faith as precious as ours. Peter shares a faith with these people. His prayer for them, in verse 2, is that grace and peace will be multiplied or that they will be theirs in abundance. And I guess that's our prayer for one another. If you're praying for another Christian and you don't know what to pray, well, just look at the beginning of some of the letters in the New Testament and you find wonderful little ways in which we can pray for one another. And here's a great one. I pray for you that grace and peace would be multiplied amongst you here at Port Macquarie. A great prayer. How are God's grace and peace multiplied amongst us? The answer is that's going to happen as we grow as Christians and turn our knowledge about the Lord Jesus into action. Um, so we're going to ask three questions of the passage today, uh, all related to the growth theme. The first one is the question of why should we grow? Now let's, let's put the question in a fairly blunt form. Let's imagine you're a non-Christian, you've just been converted, and an evangelist has told you that the moment you believe you'll be a newborn child of God by word and spirit. The moment you believe you've got forgiveness of your sins, the moment you believe you've got a sure and certain hope of eternal life. Why should you bother making an effort to grow as a Christian? I mean, it means it's going to cost you nights out of Bible study. It might mean you go off to college and do some courses. 
um, it, it means you're going to have to work hard at the sanctification of your character as you give up bad habits and take on good habits. Why should you invest a whole lot of effort in your Christian growth? Life's busy. Why do it if you are already forgiven and if you have the hope of eternal life? Peter gives us three reasons why you and I should attend to our growth and the growth of one another. The first is that it's God's purpose. Verses 3 and 4. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises. Now we get the reason. So that, well, that is, God's done all these things with the purpose that we might participate in the divine nature and the flip side is to escape the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. God desires that all men are saved. We read that in one of the letters to Timothy. But being saved is not the goal. Being saved is just an instrumental step along the way. The goal is that we grow to become like Jesus. Salvation, if you like, is the entry point of the kingdom of God. We then have to live as citizens. What God really wants, and the reason why he's given us the gospel promises is there in verse 4, that we might escape what? The corruption of the world caused by even desires, and instead we might participate in the divine nature. That is, that we might become mature and become like God. Now, we just need a word of explanation. That phrase, that you might participate in the divine nature, if you've had any background in Eastern worldviews or religion, you might read that and you think that it's, uh, it's us becoming God in some way, and as we get older, we become more and more like God. So when you're a really old person, you're sort of like God, you're ready to meet God, and you become God. Um, no, that's not what the passage is saying. When it talks about partaking in the divine nature, it just becomes being godly, being more like God. The stuff we saw in the last talk, bearing God's image in a more fulsome way. So where do we escape the corruption of the world and take on God's qualities? That's God's purpose in your salvation. And if you love God, you'll want to see God's purpose achieved, won't you? If you love God, you'll want to see his purpose achieved. In you. And his purpose is that you should grow to maturity and become more and more like God in your characteristics. The second reason Peter gives us why we should attend to our growth is in verses 8 and 9. He says he's listed off all these qualities we're meant to grow, and we'll see, look at those in a moment. Then he says, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, there's a growth word, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they'll keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. What he's talking about here is that we, get, we can see people who know a lot about God, but maybe they don't know God in a personal relational sense. They will know a lot about God, so they're in that middle sea of convictions, but maybe there's not the first sea of Christian character and there's not the competency or ability and availability in service. Sometimes, I'm an educator by trade, and so I'm in the knowledge business, but sometimes it's dangerous to learn things. Because if you learn things about God and you're not living them out, you are putting yourself in increasing danger. Remember what Jesus said about it's not people who hear, but people who do the word of God. Or think of a passage such as that in 
Romans 2, where Paul's talking about the liability of the human race to judgment. And he says how God judges us, not on the basis of what we don't know, but on the basis of what we do know. And the acid test is, are you doing what you know? So the non-Jews, or the only knowledge of God they had was in creation and conscience, and they're going to be judged, are they living by the little bit they know about God? The greatly privileged people were the Jews, the laws, the prophets, the covenants, and the test for them is, are they living by the greater knowledge of God? How much more so, then, are you and I responsible here? Because we have the fullness of God's revelation in Christ. We see God's end game. We live in the last days. We have the whole Bible. Be warned about having unproductive knowledge of God that is ineffective. Um, let's imagine you take your lunch uh, near a medical centre and... Uh, you go around the back and you see the doctors and the nurses sitting outside in the beautiful Port Macquarie sun at the back of the medical centre having their lunch. And, and every day they got pies for their lunch. And then after their pies and sausage rolls, they kind of light up a cigarette before they go back and tell other people about healthy lifestyle habits. Well, you wouldn't go to that medical practice, would you? Ineffective and unproductive knowledge. What about then the person who's in church years and decades and they might go to Bible studies and camps and all the rest of it. They soak and soak and soak up knowledge about God, but it's not making any difference to their life. That's dangerous learning. Why should we grow as Christians? We should grow because it's God's purpose in us, number one. Number two, we should grow as Christians because God wants our knowledge about him to be effective and productive. Um, you belong to a church where Scott and Peter and others in the church teach you the Bible well. Rejoice in that. Put yourself under their teaching, but make sure you're growing so that your knowledge is not unproductive. The third reason why we should be concerned about our own growth, Peter tells us, is for assurance that we are Christian people. Verses 10 and 11. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure. If you do these things, you'll never fall and you'll receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. How do you know if you're a Christian? Are you really sure that if you were to die tonight, you'd go to heaven? Those are unsettling questions. And I guess at times every Christian person, and some more than others, will be deeply troubled by the question of assurance. Can Christians lose their salvation? Now that's an enormous topic that's a whole week-long thing in itself. But in summary, from where God looks at it, the answer is no. Because God knows those who are truly his. And we're told in Romans 8, there's this little golden chain. God's predestination leads to the justification that is ours in Christ, the calling that is ours through his spirit, and then to the state of glory. And once the sequence starts with God's predestination, it's a chain that doesn't get broken. Or again in John 10, Jesus says that he's not going to lose any of the people given to him. It's the Father who gives people to the Son in his predestinating choice, and that guarantees it. So from God's point of view, you can't lose your salvation. But we don't see from God's point of view. We see from our point of view. And we see people. I've seen it in my own family and friends. Um, the guy who led me to Christ. And you might have seen it. People who appear to become Christians, who are fervent for the Lord, maybe they're in a position of leadership, and then they seem to lose their salvation and, and fall from faith. The issue here is the appearance that we see. God sees a different appearance. 
So from where we sit, um, every one of us, every one of us here today, starting with me, ought to entertain the possibility that we could fall away and lose our salvation. We ought to have a little edginess about this question. How do we, from a human perspective, make sure that's not going to happen? Verses 10 and 11, be all the more certain to make your calling election sure. And how do you do that? You do it by growing as a Christian, taking on the qualities that we're about to look at, taking on those qualities and showing them in increasing measure. It's as we see our own growth as a Christian and our progress in character, conviction and competence, that is the reassurance to us that we really are a child of God. The person who says they believe in Jesus, but where nothing's changing or nothing's changed for decades, that person, quite frankly, ought to be worried and they ought to question their assurance. The answer, of course, is to invest in their own growth and to show the qualities in increasing message. Okay, three reasons then to grow as a Christian. It's God's purpose, avoids the problem of unproductive knowledge, and third, because it gives us assurance that we really are God's children. Next question, what does growth look like? Um, we saw the three C's before, character, convictions and competence. Peter gives us a little list in verses 5 and following. Faith turned to goodness, goodness to knowledge, knowledge to self-control, self-control to perseverance, perseverance to godliness, godliness to brotherly kindness, brotherly kindness to love. Uh, do you notice all of those things there about Christian character? Remember the three C's, character, convictions, confidence. Sorry, you got one, conviction, you got the knowledge bits about our convictions. But most of what Peter's concerned about here is Christian character. In every book you look at on Christian leadership or Christian growth, it's character, 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 that basic Christ-likeness. That is the foundation of all our other growth. Um, yesterday we had a training conference for the elders and a passage like 1 Timothy 3 is relevant where the, God gives us the qualifications that are needed for elders. Only one of them is to do with a ministry gift and that is that elders must be apt to teach. All the other qualities for Christian leaders are to do with character. So it's no surprise then when Peter's talking to us about our growth for our Christian reassurance and fulfilling God's purpose, he zeroes in on character. It is foundational. The little list he gives here, people have done a lot of work on it. Um, I've been lecturing on Aristotle this week and in part looking at Aristotle's ethics and Aristotle's got a little list of Greek virtues which many of the Greek philosophers had and some of them overlap with what we read here. But qualities like godliness and faith and such like they are unique to the christian growth paradigm it's interesting to take the list here in 2 peter and compare it with uh, galatians the fruit of the spirit passage and see the match up or to read through the sermon on the mount and see what jesus says about his disciples and compare again and we see all these links now amongst the qualities here there is some progression it starts with faith and ends with love. So the, in the big picture, there is a progression between the qualities. But we shouldn't make the mistake of thinking we've got to take them in this order. So you invest a year in your growth in faith, then another, next year is your growth in goodness, your next year is growth in knowledge, and then your next year is growth in self-control. It's not kind of strictly sequential. But there is a progression from faith, that's the point of 
coming to salvation, there's a progression from faith, and the high point is love. shouldn't surprise us, because Jesus gives loving God and loving neighbour, doesn't he? It's the high point, the summary of the commandment. So our growth is a trajectory, starting from faith, moving through knowledge, because knowledge is the means of our spiritual growth, as we saw from Ephesians. We move from faith through knowledge, and that's taking us on an upward trajectory of character until finally we go from brotherly love to love in its most pure form. I'm not going to spend time going through all of these individual qualities, but I would encourage you to give yourself a little homework assignment. So maybe when you get home this afternoon, after you've had coffee and fed the dog, whatever else you're going to do, etc., draw up a table with two columns. In one column, you list down these various qualities that are mentioned here in verses 5 to 7. So you, you list them down and you define them as you write them down. And then rank the qualities in terms of the ones that are most applicable to you. So it might be you're someone who's doing pretty well in terms of the knowledge stakes, but you're not doing very well in terms of self-control. So you might rank self-control as the area you most need to work on right now because that's where there's the deficiency and so key to other things. So you're listing the qualities, defining them, you're then ranking them. Actually, you need more than two columns, don't you? So list them in one column, define them in the next column, the next column over, rank them in terms of importance for you now, and then in the fourth column, write down what it's going to look like for you now. So if you need to grow in self-control, what are the situations where you need to grow in self-control? Um, there's someone at home who says something that pushes your button. And if it's a child, they delight in pushing your button, don't they? Just to see you, to see mum have a little rant. Or there's someone at work who knows how to needle you in just the right way. Oh, Frank, your sales figures are not very good this week, are they? So work out where it is in exactly in your life where you need to grow in self-control. And then you work out the strategies with God's help to work on it. It's very important we do an exercise like that because it's one thing to read a list like this and nod your head and say, that's great. It's another thing to personalise what it means in your life. That's where your real growth will happen as you identify which of these qualities need your attention and you set yourself to it. Okay, so we've looked at why we should grow and um, we've moved on from that. What does our growth look like? We've got this little list of qualities. How do we achieve this growth? The table's giving us a wish list. I said that I've been lecturing on Aristotle's ethics this week. Aristotle, like many of the ancient philosophers, gives wonderful wise advice. Look, you read Aristotle, Plato, you read Confucius, and it's great stuff. And if we all lived by the things they said, gee, we in the world would be much better off. But what they don't have, all these other guys, is the how-to. How can we overcome the weaknesses of our sinful, frail human nature, and how can we turn a list of virtues into virtuous behaviour? That's where the gospel does something that Aristotle or the others will never do for you. How do we take on these qualities? The passage points us in two interconnected directions. They are both important, and the order is supremely important because it's the gospel order. And it is that we start with what God has already done for us, and then we go on to what we've got to do for God. That's how we grow and take on these qualities. Start with what God has done and then do our bit. The whole Christian gospel is first what God has done for us and only then 
what we do for God. Look back at verse, uh, verse 3. His divine power has given us some of the things we need for life and godliness. Not in my translation. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his glory and goodness. Through these, he's given his great and precious promises and so on and so on. The emphasis is on what God has done. The point being made is that everything we need to take on these qualities of Christian growth that give us assurance, it's already there. Um, the way of God is he's not cruel. He never gives us a command to do something without the means that will enable us to do it. God's command is always accompanied by his provision, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament. And here God calls us to grow from knowledge to love, from faith to love rather, and God provides the means for it to happen. And so in scripture, God gives all we need for direction in our Christian growth. In the Holy Spirit, he gives the renewal of his image and he gives power to enable the change so we become self-controlled on the rest of it. And supremely and foundationally, in Christ, he gives that righteousness, that right standing with God, which is the foundation of the Christian life. So in the Holy Spirit, in the Holy Scriptures, and the work of Christ, God provides all that is needed for our Christian life. God does not call us to a task that is impossible before we begin it. See, if you're just telling people to move from faith to love, you're just laying a burden on people's backs. And you, it's not good news, that gospel, it's bad news, because you're telling people to do things they can't do. Aristotle meant well, but he's cruel, because we can't live the Aristotelian good life by ourselves. But it's different with the gospel because God has provided everything we need for our life and our growth. That's a great incentive for our Christian growth, isn't it? You know, if you set out to take on some tasks and at the outset you know it's impossible, you might plug on for a while, then you give up, don't you? But because we know at the start of our effort of Christian growth that God has provided everything, that encourages us to get going. But now the second part of our Christian growth, we begin with what God has done for us. The second part is in verse 5. For this reason, note the four, because God has provided everything we need, therefore make every effort to add to your faith, knowledge and so on. Christian growth does not happen by magic. Um, when we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, God doesn't zap us such that we are instantly and fully matured and perfect in our Christian character. And that's a danger in our age, isn't it? I mean, if you have to wait 30 seconds at a McDonald's or 50 seconds somewhere for your coffee, we get cross and cranky. We are very impatient. We want things instantly. And it's a real danger when we carry that through to our Christian life. God works in decades, not in days in our lives. <coughs> and so as you get into your 60s, your 70s and your 80s, God's still there at work and he's forming you after his own nature. So it's an ongoing effort that's needed for our Christian growth. And that means we've got a present and an ongoing responsibility to bend our entire will, strength and energies to the business of growing in Christian character. This is not a part-time hobby. It's not something we dip in and out of. 
It's a lifetime project to work with God on our growth. Um, we find a parallel to this kind of teaching in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, <coughs> where Paul writes, Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but much more so in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So there Paul's laying the burden on them. Keep working at extending your salvation into every part of your life. That's the command. But then in verse 13, for or because it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So Philippians is saying the same thing as to Peter. First of all, there is God's provision. And it is because of God's provision we confidently tackle our Christian growth knowing that God would make it possible. And again, that's something to apply both to ourselves and to one another within the church. It's also got impacts on the way we evangelise. There's plenty of books around about finishing well in the Christian life. I've got some on my bookshelves. A few years ago, I got a book called Beginning Well. Curious title, I went along to hear the author speak at a seminar. And he's talking about the importance of the way in which we evangelise people. We ought to be evangelising people so we're setting them up for onward Christian growth. Whereas if our method of evangelism is all focused on the moment of decision, think of the Robert Redford movie, Elected Now, if the form of evangelism is focused on the moment of decision, then we're not setting people up to grow. Whereas if we make the point that there's a, serious, there's a journey, there's a stepping stone, the call of Jesus is to follow me, not just believe, the way we evangelise should set people up so they see their conversion as just the beginning of the journey. Back to the start of the movie, Robert Redford's elected to the Senate, didn't get to marry my wife, I did better than him. Robert Redford says, what now? What now for us as Christians? Look at what God has already done for you in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at God's provision for you through the Holy Spirit to make you new as a child of God. Look at what God has, God's provision for you in giving the fullness of the scriptures. Look at what God has done. Build on it. Use the help that God gives and make every effort at your growth and the growth of others. What now? Well, another song from around the time I was married, we've only just begun. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you speak to us in the Bible with such clarity and in a way that through these ancient letters, in a way that speaks straight to our heart and our life now, and whether we're young or older in the Christian life, we thank you that there's things for us to learn. Father, we do thank you for all that you've done for us, the generous provision of righteousness through the Lord Jesus, your grace to predestine us to be your sons and your daughters, the work of your spirit to call us to faith, to sustain us in faith, to teach us how to pray and read our Bible and to clean up our lives. We thank you that you've done everything we need. We pray that that won't make us slackers in the Christian life, but rather it would incentivate us to make every effort at our growth and the growth of others, that we too might share in the divine nature, that we might make our calling and election sure and we might receive the welcome to eternal life. This we pray for your glory and our welfare. Amen.